developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek Starships collection. Get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 when you sign up today at st-starships.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 213. The Perfect Mate. I am for you, Moonlighting Podcast. It is such oh. a... No, 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 no. Hey, Ken. Ken, mm-hmm. this is Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Am I early? No. Um... I'm John Champion. And and I'm Ken Ray. I, I could have sworn that I was supposed to be awakened for another podcast. No. Uh, each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for messages, morals, ideas, and ideals, and seeing whether the episode stands the test of time. Okay. Um, according to the screen here, this week, it's the perfect mate. Uh, the one where Picard meets his perfect mate... And everyone else's. In a moment, John will bring us trivia, but first, a word about something that brings us both joy. Moonlighting. That too. Now, I was thinking about uh, the official Star Trek Starships collection. Oh, right, yeah. I I dig that. Teeny tiny ships for a big galaxy. By the way, Ken, uh, something new that I think you will find cool and our listeners will find cool as well. Hardback book, 160 pages, by the people who have been working on this collection, Ben Robinson, and uh, it's jam-packed with information from sketch to final product, how these ships were designed for Star Trek and how they ended up into the models that you get to hold in your very hands. Wow, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Now, that is that is something, what is that? That's like a thing that they'll send you or a thing you can buy separately? What are we talking about here? That's the thing that you can buy separately. Well worth it if you're a collector and you like to have kind of, you know, what we like to talk about all that in-universe and also behind-the-scenes information is all in this one volume, covering 30 ships, how they were made. Okay, and those are the ships that when people subscribe... I mean, so it's it's talking about the ships basically that that people are signing up for and and having come to them every every few weeks. Indeed, and those okay. ships would be from the Star Trek universe. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right? So 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 the book is a cool thing to check out, but then of course uh, the ships themselves are cool things to check out as well. Um, and here's how you do that: you subscribe to the official Star Trek Starships collection, and you get two ships a month uh, from the original series all the way through the Kelvin timeline. It's not just the ships you get, though. You also get the magazine uh, filled with production notes, design notes, and in-universe information about the ship. And you get a digital download of that magazine, uh, which not only gives you access to even more information online, it also lets you keep the physical magazine uh, as close to pristine as possible. And um, you get all that for $20 per ship. That's two ships a month, two magazines a month, two digital magazines a month, 40 bucks a month. 
Plus, Ken, you get extra surprises the longer you stay subscribed. And you can start your subscription at a crazy low price. Get the Enterprise 1701D. Taxi to such amazing characters as Kamalo the Metamorph and a number of freeloading energy beings. Get the Enterprise D and its accompanying magazine for $4.95 to try it out. The address to do that is st-starships.com slash mission log. st-starships.com slash mission log. Uh, it's important that you use that address specifically because that mission log at the end of it lets them know that you heard about them through us, uh, which makes all of us just incredibly happy. <laughs> that address again is st-starships.com slash mission log. And a big thanks again to Eagle Moss for sponsoring Mission Log. As we say this time in every show, John's got trivia coming up in just a moment. But first, <laughs> I'm going to tell you how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please, please do remember, please, <laughs> if you forget everything else, remember this. We may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And then if you can only remember one other thing, ooh, make it trivia. <laughs> but but all the trivia. If all the trivia. one thing, yeah. remember all the trivia. Yeah. <laughs> if you remember one thing, yeah. it's all the stuff that's not important, but all of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's about, you know, a dozen bullet point items that, that you need to wrap your head around for this episode, which is the perfect mate. Today's episode was written by Rene Echeverria and Gary Picante. Well, we've heard of Rene and how he got his start on Next Generation, but who in the world is Gary Picante? Well, he's actually Ruben Leader. Now, Ruben was born into a showbiz family and has worked in the industry since he was pretty young. His other writing credits include Tales of the Gold Monkey, The Incredible Hulk, Baywatch, and more. But he really worked heavily on Magnum P.I., on which he was a producer and writer for multiple episodes and a director for one episode in season six. Now, the script for this episode then was written by Gary Picante and Michael Piller. It was directed by Cliff Bowl. Cliff, uh, for his next-gen credits, of course, started way back with Lonely Among Us, and most recently, he directed Unification 2. Now, we do have a deleted scene for this episode, but let's save talking about that until after the recap. Trill Spots. Spots everywhere. Well, uh, this is kind of weird. So we've seen a trill before. We kind of got our idea of what a trill is in the episode, The Host, but no spots. They didn't look particularly different other than just being in a different host body each time. Well, in this episode, we introduce the idea of these spots as part of the alien makeup. And if we fast forward, yeah, we're breaking the timeline a little bit because sometimes we do that. Fast forward a little bit. And when we reintroduce the trill, they're going to go back and use the makeup pattern that they came up with for this episode to reintroduce what the trill looked like. So that's why we see spots in this episode. Now, we just had the mud baths in the episode Cost of Living, and now we have the same exact set reused for the holodeck temple 
in this episode. So if you give that a good look, kind of a raised platform and a triangular roof section, yep, different lighting, but this is the exact same set redress. That is that is like television magic right there. Because it absolutely is. I thought the mud baths in the parallax colony looked kind of cheesy. And I thought that the temple looked like a groovy Moroccan joint I'd like to go to. Mm hmm. Yep. Yep. It's the magic of TV. That's amazing. It's amazing. We have have another reused item here. The Creosian ship is indeed that Tolarian ship that we saw in Suddenly Human. And time to talk about guest stars, because, uh, of course, we have guest stars with TV and movie credits. But in this episode, we have a lot of people with some deep sci-fi experience. So let's kick that off by talking about Tim O'Connor, Ambassador Briam. Now, Tim O'Connor is from Chicago, and he worked a little bit in the 40s and 50s, but he really saw his acting career take off in the 1960s. A lot of guest roles on shows like Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And those led to a recurring stint on The Defenders and then a regular role on Peyton Place. In fact, he is in 416 episodes out of the more than 500 that that show ran. More and more roles followed. But who am I kidding? He is Dr. Hewer from Buck Rogers in the 25th century. And you can hear me talk ad nauseum about how awesome he is in that when we do our Buck Rogers retrospective podcast. That is not happening. That is not happening. That's that is so happening. It's two seasons, two seasons, two two seasons, one good one. Yeah, we have uh, Mickey Cottrell, who plays Ulrich, and in addition to being an actor, he has actually worked as a publicist in the industry since the 1970s. His first major acting role doesn't show up until 1991's My Own Private Idaho, and his third job is this episode of Next Gen. Now, numerous roles followed. He's got a bit part in Ed Wood, and he will be back for Star Trek Voyager in a guest role there. We get to say hi to Max Gradenchik again, and we've seen him before in TNG as a Ferengi in Captain's Holiday. And I'm pretty sure that we mentioned that you will see a lot more of him in the years to come on Deep Space Nine. If you want to see him without all the prosthetics on his face, check him out in Apollo 13, Barton Fink, CSI, Six Feet Under, and much more. We have Michael Snyder, who plays Quoll. And you may not know the name, but you have definitely seen him before. Remember Star Trek VI? The guy with the weird feet who couldn't possibly have snuck over to kill the Klingons? Well, that was Michael Snyder as Dax. And even before that, he had a bit part in Star Trek IV as a communications officer. He'll be back for one more Next Gen episode. He got his start in theater, and it's worth noting that he was also in the original Broadway cast of Equus, which also featured Leonard Nimoy. And finally, Famke Janssen as Kamala. Now, Famke Janssen should be very familiar to genre audiences. This episode was only her second professional acting credit, but it kicked off a pretty high-profile career. Soon after this, she was Xenia on a top in GoldenEye, and you've definitely seen her as Jean Grey in the X-Men films featuring a somewhat known English actor by the name of Patrick Stewart. Those roles, of course, go on top of her work on numerous TV shows, The Blacklist, Nip Tuck, Allie McBeal, Hemlock Grove, and more. Last week, a wedding. This week, a wedding. Will this one be a happy union? Digits crossed. Prologue. 
Picard is doing what Picard does, acting as the ultimate diplomat on the Enterprise, welcoming representatives from Krios and Vault Miner who are ending their hostilities. The ambassador from Krios, Priam, is already on board, and he brought a special cargo with him, which is tucked away in a cargo bay. Tea time is interrupted, though, when a distress call from a Ferengi ship comes through. It's a small shuttle with two on board, and just as the Enterprise can get a transporter lock to beam them on board, the ship explodes. The passengers, Par, Lenore, and Quoll, are fine, and Worf takes them to a nice room for them to wait it out until after the diplomatic mission, and they are all too pleased to wait. In fact, when Worf leaves, they agree that getting on board was all too easy. This might just indicate... They are up to something. Act 1. Jordy brings up something he's been working on, a reproduction of an ancient Creosian ceremonial spot in the holodeck, perfect for the ceremony. Coming out of the holodeck, Briam is halted by Par Lenor, who is excited to meet the ambassador and start talking about how the Ferengi can profit from their trade agreements. Oh, and this distraction is the perfect opportunity for the other Ferengi, Quoll, to go snooping around in the cargo bay. It isn't long before he makes a royal mess of things. Startled by Worf, he kicks over a container into the glowing cocoon brought on board by Briam. What's inside the cocoon? A woman. A tall, adult, poised, beautiful woman who sees Picard and announces that she is there for him. Act 2. Ah, there's been a mistake. Captain Picard isn't Ulrich of Vault, and Kamala, the woman from the cocoon, wasn't supposed to be woken up like this. See, she's a gift for Ulrich when he arrives. A what? Picard assures her that under Federation law, individuals are not property who can be owned, but she assures him that she's unique. She's a mutant who is biologically compelled to empathically sense what her mate wants and then morph into that. It's a rarity, but metamorphs are highly prized. And it's the whole reason why Krios and Vault split in the first place two brothers fighting over a metamorph. When she's done imprinting on her mate, Kamala will lock in the qualities of being the perfect mate. Slow clap, that's the title. This arrangement has been planned since Kamala's birth. She's not only okay with it, it's what she was born to do. It's her purpose. Riker escorts Kamala to proper quarters, and on the way, she explains that she is in a heightened stage of sexual maturity, which is why she was in stasis. She's just exuding pheromones, and she's empathically sensing everything about the desires of the men around her. It isn't long before they are in her quarters, and Kamala satisfies Riker's curiosity with a kiss, but Riker, showing a Herculean level of restraint, thinks better of it and leaves Kamala so he can unwind in the holodeck. Picard and Beverly Crusher over tea and croissant discuss the ethics of the whole situation. Beverly is appalled that they are essentially delivering a woman into a life of servitude. Picard counters that this is what she was born to do, and furthermore, the Prime Directive prevents him from interfering. When Beverly reminds him that Briam has her under lock and key in her quarters, the captain concedes that he should probably look into it. In her quarters, Kamala says she's doing all right, given the circumstances, Picard is concerned about her, but she kind of turns this around, getting very interested in what he's like. But Picard asks her to stop. Stop the, you know, being who she is and what she is like. She can't, though. She's compelled to act as who she is, and that means getting a good read on the men around her and turning on that charm. She can't help it. 
And Picard can't help but be a little alarmed at the prospect of a sentient being living out her life for the sole purpose of pleasing someone else. But that's what she wants and what gives her pleasure, even when Picard pushes her to express her own individual desires. When no one is around, she says she is incomplete. As Picard leaves, promising to speak to Ambassador Briam about easing her restrictions, Kamala seems to have been given a little bit of a lift by the man she just expresses herself to as independent, forceful, brilliant, and adventurous, just as he would have her. Act 3. When Picard finds Briam, he's practicing ceremonial music on the holodeck, and he is not into the idea of easing Kamala's restrictions. It's too dangerous. Every man on the ship would be fighting for her. Except Data. He could show her around and not give in to her allure. She'd rather hang with Picard, but this is really best for everyone. Except that Kamala still seems more interested in talking about Picard, even with Data. In 10 Forward, a group of miners from Herod 4 notice right away when Kamala enters. They are uh, possibly starved for female attention. Kamala can hold her own, but Data stays by to be bodyguard, and he can't handle the crowd. War steps in to quiet down the rowdies. On second thought, Kamala thinks maybe she should be watched a little more closely. She'll stay in her quarters as long as Picard will visit her. He's reluctant. She's persuasive. And she also schools him in literature, archaeology, and other topics that stroke his ego and fire Picard's interest. He's trying really hard to make it look like he's just a boring old captain who stays to himself and falls asleep reading a good book. Kamala is a bit more perceptive than that, though. She's intrigued by him, but even in his dullness, since she's empathic, it also means there's a part of him that wants her. Know who else wants Kamala? Those Ferengi. They summon Ambassador Briam and try very hard to bribe him. Loads of gold, and hey, a ship will meet them in three hours to take Kamala and them away. He's not having it, though. Briam is way more honorable than that and will report them to the captain. And since he is and there's no bribe big enough, the Ferengi throw the ambassador into a glass coffee table. Act 4. Picard has sent the Ferengi off to Starbase for prosecution. For what exactly depends on what happens with Briam. He's in Dr. Crusher's care at the moment with a nasty head wound, and he might make it. The only sensible thing to do is delay the meeting with Ulrich, but Kamala tells Picard he can't do that. Her ability to imprint, to morph, to fit Arik's wishes will only work a little while longer. They need to go ahead with the meeting, and without Briam, Picard will need to step in to negotiate on behalf of the Creosians. And good news, Kamala can personally help Picard to prepare. Back to the musical instruments, and Picard opens up a little about taking piano lessons when he was a kid, and letting down his guard seems to really please Kamala. She can tell he is a bit afraid, and he admits that he's well aware that she's intriguing but unavailable. Picard poses the question again if what she's doing is of her own accord. She admits that she's known no other possibility in her life, which makes her maybe just a little conflicted now that she's taken a shine to Picard. Saved by the bell, Ulrich has just beamed aboard. Picard goes to meet him, and Ulrich is in full diplomatic mode, maybe a little stiff, but he's more interested in peace than anything, and he's appreciative that everything seems to be going to plan. And the metamorph, yeah, 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 that too. But again, Ulrich is really just there for business. So Kamala asks Picard what Ulrich is like, and Picard is like, well, you know, he's a guy. 
no, no, seriously, he's he's totally he's a he's a guy and he's and he's he's got red hair and he's here. So things will be great tomorrow when you meet him for the first time. She doesn't want Picard to leave. She just wants to hear the sound of his voice and not be alone while she contemplates tomorrow. Act five, back to tea time with Beverly. Picard confides that he's grown more than a little accustomed to Kamala. She's great. And the fact that her life has been orchestrated for this moment leaves him somewhat conflicted, not to mention he's a little jealous, maybe, knowing that she'll switch on her abilities for the next man in the room, that man being Ulrich, all too soon. Picard greets Kamala, and she is resplendent in her wedding gown. She's sure, though, that she will never truly love Ulrich, not a little bit because she has bonded with Picard, and that has left an impression on this incarnation of her. Picard can't ask her to stay. It would mean the Creosians and the Valtans would stay at war with each other, and Kamala has learned a thing or two about duty from Picard. The wedding will go on. At the ceremony, Ulrich is wedded to Kamala, and all Picard do is look on stoically. Ambassador Briam has recovered, and he is escorted to the transporter room by Picard. Before he leaves, he asks the captain how in the world he could have resisted a beautiful metamorph like Kamala, a question which Picard evades. The end. Penny for your thoughts. What's a penny? <laughs> I know, right? Uh-huh. I, I couldn't. I couldn't help but think about uh, when uh, when they uh, they were trying to divide up who was going to use some part of some science lab or something. Mm-hmm. And Jordy said, "Tell him to flip a coin." And and um, and Data actually said, "I'll have the computer replicate one." Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm thinking right. we should just walk around with a set of dice and a coin every time we need <laughs> to make a decision <laughs> in the 24th century. It, it is interesting, though, to think that uh, certain idiomatic expressions will stick around. I mean, I, I, I'm sure that. You've read articles about kind of the language of computer interfaces and phone interfaces and and how we still say things like hang up the phone, even though there is nothing to hang up anymore. Right. Yeah. You know? Oh, please. Every now and then I still talk about taping a show. Oh, yeah. What? Totally. With yeah. what? Yeah. No. <laughs> right. Or with our tapeless computing devices. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's what I call mine. Wow. That's so mm-hmm. weird. Yeah. Hey, by the way, before we get much further, where is Deanna during all of this? The empath who is permanently yeah. on board the Enterprise? And it's her week off. Yeah. That's she had to go bad. see her. Her mother was here last week, you know. Oh, and, right. And she was. Maybe like yeah, right yeah. as she was leaving, she was like, and you never call and you never come by. And Deanna's like, fine, I'll come this week. It'll <laughs> be stay whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Because really what we need is her around when Riker is once again tempted by someone else. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. But, but Deanna's good with that. She's like, yeah, hey, whatever, we're still friends. She was not good with that in the Ensign Row episode. It just, just depends on the episode. She's, exactly. She's good with that sometimes. Yeah. Hey, and here's a question for you. If the cargo that Ambassador Briam brought on board, i.e. the cocoon, if it's so fragile and the cargo bay should be off limits to everyone, then why isn't it actually off limits? Uh, Picard, please do your job. Worf, please do your job. And everybody else, please do your jobs. That just seemed like a very simple, straightforward, hey, I brought on this thing. It's fragile. It can't be replaced. Please don't let anybody in there. And then, oh, okay, cool. Well, just like how we give Khan the schematics to the ship in the uh, original series. I was just going to say that. We're just going to let the Ferengi just wander around and, oh, yeah, cargo bay, yeah, go right on it. Yeah. Well, you know, it makes sense you would let the Ferengi do that, though, because they've never been trouble before. 
No, not at all. Not at all. No. <laughs> kind of amazing. Yeah, really. I honestly expected when, when Warp was like, uh, security of the cargo bay one, and Riker looks over his shoulder and Warp says, one of the Ferengi. I really expected <laughs> to, I expected Riker to go, are you kidding me? Really? <laughs> You're getting funny. to that now. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and funny enough, Riker was the one who said, give our Ferengi guests quarters, but not too close to mine. Okay. All right. All right so Riker, Riker, do your job too. Which might mean a little bit of diplomacy and a little bit of keeping an eye on people. So maybe they should have been right next to his quarters. <laughs> well, he wasn't there. He was either on the bridge or in Holodeck 4. <laughs> well, he, well, eventually he's in Holodeck 4. But yeah, but you know, Riker is, he's, he's second in command and, uh, and they have guests on board. So Riker, be cool. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. Holodeck mm-hmm. 4, by the way, best line, maybe actually the best. We're finally saying, look, we know everything there is to know about Riker. <laughs> it's, this it's character true. may still yeah. grow, but here's the thing. He is he is honor. He is duty. He will do what he has to do, but mm-hmm. the guy has needs, and he's going to take care of him ASAP. And, and we're indicating to the audience, we, we're saying to the audience, we know what the holodeck is for. <laughs> well, we <laughs> yeah. know what some people use the holodeck for. Mm-hmm. We know what Riker uses the holodeck for. And I think we yeah. actually finally can go ahead and say, yes, that, that, that video that he was watching in his quarters that time mm-hmm. ends very differently than it starts. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. But hey, Ken, have you had a chance to see the dolphins yet? Yeah, what was up with that? It was almost like they, okay, so, well, it was a question I was going to ask later, but I guess I can go ahead and ask it now. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any point to having the Ferengi on the ship? Because it almost feels like everything that was incidental with the Ferengi was written to be absurd. Have you had a chance to see the dolphins yet? The Ferengi says, oh, I was looking for a barber shop. What need has a Ferengi with a barber shop? <laughs> they don't have facial hair. They don't have hair. They got nothing. Yeah. And yeah. yet, and yet, the the two throwaway lines about the Ferengi are so completely throwaway that it almost mm-hmm. feels to me like somebody was writing the um, the Cliff's notes for this and and telling me, yeah, pay no attention to the Ferengi. They just they do not matter in this episode at all. They're just a way to advance the plot. And yeah. we can go back to uh, we can go back to why that as opposed to something else a little bit later. I guess I agree. You could have written this episode without the Ferengi. There is a way to do that. Yeah, yeah. There, yes. there is a way oh, to do that. There's an easy way uh, to do that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I guess as long as we got them, we're going to use them to a little bit of comic effect. Although I, I guess you would have had to have found a different way to get Ambassador Briam out of the way. And at least this way you have a very definitive, very dramatic way to get him out of there. Mm-hmm. Um Good point that. But but uh, there are dolphins on board. Now, there's a little bit more uh, later on in Star Trek that we may hear about the dolphins. I, but I, I believe that this has been expanded more in the, the non-canon, non-film stuff. The idea that dolphins being on board actually serve a navigational purpose and that the dolphins are treated as crew. But but again, we're, we're talking about non-canon, non-film stuff. So sounds like Sequest. Yeah, yeah. Was that the, was that the show with Roy Scheider? Sequest. That, that was the show. I, I'm just going to assume that the dolphins are hanging out with the puppies when whenever they're off duty. Maybe so. Yeah. Uh, Kamala has an interesting line to Picard. Might as well ask a Vulcan to forego logic or a Klingon to be nonviolent. And I thought, wow, that's that we were just going to paint with a broad brush right across those monocultures, as we sometimes do in Star Trek. Just yeah, good point that because we we have actually met um, what's his name, 
Cybok. Cybok and who is a Vulcan who does forego logic, and we have met uh, Worf, who is constantly not killing people. <laughs> right? Yeah, he does yeah. more not killing than probably any other Klingon we've seen. Yep. Yeah. So, but you know, I I, I get her point. Yeah. But but again, if you you want to be specific, and uh, let's see, the Enterprise had picked up some miners from Herod Four, um, and I'm just going to say, all right, going back to Mud's women. I'm going to say that miners need better press agents, starting now, so we can uh, lay this out for the future better. Because every time there's a miner that shows up or a mining colony that we go to on Star Trek, there's going to be trouble. And and once again, we have trouble as soon as we introduce yeah. the miners. Yeah. Well, why else do you go to a mining colony? Yeah. I mean, either you, either you need raw materials or there's trouble. Mm-hmm. Right. That should be on their business cards. You know, welcome to Italics Mining Colony. We have materials and trouble. Right. If you're mm-hmm. here, there's trouble. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um, I also wondered, shouldn't we have introduced Kamala to Ulrich right away? Like, I, as soon as we know that he's on board, Picard is like, okay, go. It, it, we're just, we'll take you to him and and we will be done with that. Like, before... He even meets Picard. Just get her in the room with him. Thought that might have been maybe the more honorable thing to do. Uh, yeah, there's there's tradition though, dude. There's ceremony. I mean, there's there's a whole there's a whole thing to this thing. Yeah, I, there's tradition, but I mean, it literally could be like, hey, I'm Picard. Welcome aboard the Enterprise. I'm going to be doing the negotiation, and here's Kamala. You know, you can get that over with in a few seconds. Um, I do want to point out that out of the many, many good scenes in this episode, many of them with Picard and Kamala, I think my favorite is the two of them talking after he has met Ulrich for that first time, and and she doesn't want him to leave her quarters. There's this Mm. great line in there. It's just, am I one of the most interesting life forms you've met? Please say yes. And it's so genuine, and his reaction is so warm to that yeah i think it's such a great human moment it's so nice and it's not it's not overwritten you know we we get everything that's going on in the scene but uh it plays very naturally for everything that vosh was supposed to be i i don't know if she was miscast or miswritten but i mean Mm -hmm. it is i mean you've got two powerhouse actors doing i'm sorry i'm jumping to the end apparently yeah Uh, yeah this is they are so in love they're mm-hmm. so in love, and it is yeah. so obvious, and it's uh, it's it's wonderful, even down to the things like, uh, I mean, you know, she's dating from him exactly what she wants, and then she's being coy about it at the same yeah. time. It's yeah. it's uh, it's really beautiful. Um, I think there's also a really great endearing scene when Picard says later to Beverly that he just wants to talk to a friend. So he's going to take the uniform off for a moment. Of course, she makes a joke of it, but. He's uh, he's let his guard down again for for the umpteenth time in this episode. He has let his guard down, and it's really wonderful to see. It's a, a great additional layer to Picard, which I, I think ultimately we'll come back to in our wrap-up of this episode. And, Ken, remember I talked about a deleted scene at the end of the show. Yes. So um, I can see why they deleted it. If you don't know what it is, when we get to the wedding between Ulrich and Kamala— Picard would have interrupted it. Picard would have stopped it, and he would have uh, not held his peace and actually said, nope, this is done, this is over, we're going to work out some other arrangement, and he is going to keep Kamala there on the Enterprise. However, 
It was a dream sequence. It was just what was going on in his head. And then you cut back to the actual wedding. So uh, that was written. It was filmed. You can see that version of that scene on the Blu-ray. Uh, but I believe it was Rick Berman who fought against that and said, no, we can't run that version of the edit as the, the final piece. And I, I kind of get it. I don't know if we had to put that final point on what Picard's feelings were at the time. And I don't know if we would believe that Picard would let himself fantasize that during that moment. Um, okay. Are we going to talk about this scene? Like it's actually a scene because I can think of a couple of things that sort of fascinated me about that idea. Mm -hmm. I've not seen it myself, but um, that's the uh, as spoiler alert, everybody. Although I won't say how exactly that's the end of the movie Brazil. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing you say, would we believe that Picard could do that at that point? Or would we believe that Picard would do that at that point? I am so at the edge of my seat at the end of this episode. And so honestly bereft at the end of yeah, this episode yeah. that had Picard done that, I would have been like, he's going to do what he, what he's, he's going to do the thing. <laughs> because there's no Spock, there's no Spock around to tell him I'm not gonna don't do the thing. He's like, yeah, now I'm gonna do the thing, and then and then I think I would I think I would have had a whiplash at the end of that episode, and I might have hated the writers at the end of that episode. But man, I'm intrigued by that being part of the episode. Well, but see, that's the thing though. I wonder if that would have been, and maybe Rick Berman is right about this. It's almost unfair to the audience to sort of do this fake out. Because we've really played the episode straight. We've really let it sink home with some emotional impact. And just to throw in a twist at the end for the sake of throwing in a twist, I don't think that's fair. It's not really a twist to throw in the twist, though. It is to show the turmoil that we assume that he has. But we have to, we have to, we have to stop this now so that we can do this again in a little bit. I have a concern. Was Jordy asking if the Ferengi had seen the dolphins out of interest? Or has Jordy misplaced the dolphins? This could be serious. So I brought up earlier the presence of the Ferengi and mm -hmm. whether they were necessary in this episode. And I'm going to give you the reason I think they are necessary for this episode. And it kind of goes back to Picard's dream sequence at the end that you just told me about. <laughs> so forgive me if it doesn't sound like this is you know like totally um, woven in. It's because I, I didn't know about it until just now. But I think it probably is another reason that they would have cut the dream sequence or the daydream sequence. I think the Ferengi are there because we need everything on the Enterprise to work perfectly for Picard's decision um, to have, you know, more value or to have the value mm. that I think the writers wanted it to bring. Because mm -hmm. you could easily eliminate the Ferengi and just have a malfunction of some sort. You could even look, we were in the uh, cargo bay when a thing fell and broke Worf's back. Yeah, right. So it's not hard to get um, to get uh, her awake and and get the ambassador unconscious uh, without the without having the Ferengi come in. And I feel like yeah. the Ferengi do serve a very important purpose here, though. They make everybody blameless on the Enterprise. They make everybody on the Enterprise above reproach. And hmm. and I think that actually ties into, um, I got a huge monologue coming up later. <laughs> so, <laughs> Buckle so, in. Yeah, we'll get yeah. to that. 
But I think that that is, um, I think that's why we have the Ferengi there. We need, I mean, because even, even like a failing on the Enterprise, even a mechanical failing on the Enterprise introduces doubt. And I think the writers yeah. in this episode want everybody on the Enterprise uh, to behave perfectly. I think everything has to go flawlessly on the Enterprise so that then we can sort of juxtapose the question of whether or not we're going to be, you know, these flawless individuals, which then goes back to, you know, as so Picard is fantasizing about about uh, about interrupting the wedding or, or breaking up the wedding and, and even introducing that fantasy may uh, may uh, cast him as as with blame. It may put a blemish on him. And we need everybody to seem like totally 100 percent. I almost want to go so far as to say holy, but let's let's just stick with blameless. Everybody needs to see, be completely blameless uh, to make the uh, to make the decisions and finally the the resolution. Say what it is that they that I feel like they wanted to say, and then we can uh, actually say later what that is, and then we can say even later than that whether we like it. <laughs> right, right. All right. I, I want to get one kind of thing out of the way up front because it, it may inform a little of what we talk about later. But there's something that struck me right away that there's a little bit of difficulty in talking about this episode. In that, I think you could fall into a trap of just pronouncing the very idea of the perfect mate, whether that's in capital letters as the title or lowercase letters. This is an idea as a bit of male fantasy fulfillment. Um, and and this sort of sexist idea that that we could track with that, but I don't think that this episode is about that, or at least where it is, the very idea of that is a struggle for the characters. Yeah. So the more interesting parts of this episode are about the ethical debates. It's about the question of free will, and it's about the questions of nature versus nurture, and it's about the the character piece for Picard. So I. I get it. I get that you could analyze this in a way where you just look at sort of the the sociosexual values that are being argued and discussed here. But I don't think that that is really the most interesting part or really the thrust of the episode. Yeah. And and actually, it will not surprise you uh, to know that I actually had to ask that question as well. Um, mm -hmm. Largely, though, because it was brought up to me by someone else. I, I, I feel like... Um, when we talk about uh, this side of paradise, mm -hmm. uh, everybody always said, well, you're just you know, espousing a drug culture, and that's crazy. And I always said, well, the, <laughs> the, the writers created this this set of parameters in which we're, we're working, including the fact that everybody was happy and that they were all getting healed and they were going to live forever. So that's not really a drug culture thing. You could actually say the drug culture is more uh, the way to Eden. The way to Eden? Right. Right. The, yeah. the, the, the dirty, stinking, filthy hippie episode. So Yeah, brother. <laughs> we reach. Uh, so you could say that um, that this is sexist as well, except it is established in the beginning that, look, uh, female metamorphs are a thing, but they're a rare thing. Male metaphor, metaphors, meta metaphors, metamorphs, but male ones of these happen all the time or, you know, relatively speaking, all the time. So this is not like, you know, uh, women are born to please men. In fact, very rarely does a woman like this come along. It's more often that it happens with men. And so they've set up the parameters basically to say, look, this is not a sexist episode. I can see why you might think it would be, but look, I'm telling you, it, it, these are the rules that we've set up for this particular game. And so now let's let the game play out. 
Yeah, and you have to have that scene. You have to have that scene with Beverly arguing her point to Picard because mm-hmm. I think everybody is thinking it anyway. Uh, it, it's one of the many, many ideas that could be raised by this episode. So it's good that that's there. And it's not to diminish it, but the episode is saying, uh, like like you're pointing out here, that's fine, but these are the parameters that we're setting up. This is what we're actually going to explore in the episode. Right. Because, I mean, I mean, it, it, go back to Angel One. Angel One, it felt like they mm-hmm. were trying to make a statement, but they were making the statement so horribly that it ended up feeling like just sort of a weird other kind of sexism. Um, sure. Yeah. This did not feel like that to me personally. I mean, yeah, you could say, I mean, if it was a whole planet of people and they were just farming them out all over the place, then yeah, that's what that is. We're talking about a very a particular, a, a specific set of circumstances so that we can um, uh, explore uh, the ideas that uh, they wanted to explore for whatever reason. Yeah. Now, all that said, uh, Beverly does make a very interesting point, and and it should sort of rest in the back of our minds when we talk about the, the Kamala character. Was she born this way, or was she conditioned? That's the, the phrase that Beverly uses. So we know that Kamala was born with a certain biological imperative. This is the way that people work on her planet, mostly now, men. It's, right, it's the way metamorphs work on her planet, not people. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, right, right. Not yeah. that she's not people, but I mean, it's not like everybody does this again. It's no, I know, but but right. some people, mostly men and occasionally women, work this way, and that that is their biological imperative. But but she later reveals to Picard that she was sequestered at the age of four, taken away from her family, taken away from her mother, and prepared for her destiny. Mm-hmm. Now, that opens up a whole lot of other questions of what exactly that preparation is. What we know is that she is highly educated. Mm-hmm. What we know is that she had tutors and, and she had people around her all the time. But it's sort of left as a question to our imagination how much of that was actually, and I go back to that word that Beverly uses, conditioning for her to be this perfect mate. It's an interesting question, but we're not given too much to explore that uh, within the episode. Well, I mean, except that she is educated in every single thing possible. Yeah. I mean, and so, I mean, she is conditioned to be the perfect mate, but she's not conditioned to be one person's perfect mate. I mean, yeah, which, yeah, which is yeah. kind of odd because it says that when that since she was a child, it was known that she was going to be mated to Ulrich. But at the same time, she's learned everything about everything. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe that's in case he dies and she ends up being, you know, uh, uh, gifted uh, to someone else. Or maybe it's just, you know, in case his interests change at some point. I mean, honestly, anybody who studied him for five minutes knows that all he would really be interested in is a woman who could talk business and trade yeah. and, and sit quietly in the corner while the men talk business. I mean, that I mean, that really seems like the kind of person he is. So it is kind of odd that she is. It taught as much as she is, unless that's a kind of a fail-safe thing. So I did think a little bit about the Masterpiece Society. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who were so convinced of their own purpose and their own abilities because of what they were, quote, born to do. Um, it took just a little upset beyond their control to throw that whole delicate balance out of whack. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what happens to Kamala here. And uh, again, we, we get back to that interesting question about free will. How much of her is conditioned and created? How much of her is her? And how much of her is simply reaction to what's going on? You know, if this had been a different episode that played out in a different way and she had not been woken up prematurely, 
then she would just uh, woken up and there's Ulrich and she becomes the perfect mate for Ulrich. You are kind of left with the question of how much of that influence that Picard had on her remains with her, even though she's going with Ulrich, because she basically says that at the end. That, mm-hmm. that so much of her experience with Picard will not go away, which is one of the tragedies uh, of the show here. Um, there's a great paradox in the conversation that Picard has with Kamala. Uh, they, meaning Picard and, and the other people on the Enterprise, can't accept that a sentient being would change herself to be, quote, only what someone wants them to be. But she responds that that's what gives a metamorph pleasure. And I wondered if Picard and others were too anxious to apply their own cultural values to her and and to what's going on. Because, again, I come back to this idea that there is a a biological evolutionary component of her that that is driving this whole thing. So it's something else entirely for a bunch of do-gooders on the Enterprise from the Federation to come in and say, nope, what you're doing is wrong. What your culture is doing is wrong. Captain Kirk might have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, he probably would have gladly done that. But um, it it did raise that question to me. But then I thought, you know, maybe we all do this to some extent, that, that we all bend ourselves to be what other people want. Picard bends himself to be the leader his crew wants. And to be the captain that Starfleet wants. Um, He says, but what about your wishes, your needs? And she says, they are fulfilled by what I give to others. So don't we do this all the time, (laughs) even outside of our relationships? Some people truly do thrive more so than others, the more they do for others. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think that, that you can argue that that's not the case, you know, with, with at least some people. And when it comes to sex, we're even more so on autopilot. You know, I thought that was sort of the interesting thing to bring up with Kamala early on to say that she's in this sort of uh, uh, stage of sexual maturity where it's sort of beyond her control. Her body's just making pheromones and then this part of her kicks in that can't help but to read what other people want. Kamala expresses herself outright, but humans do the same kinds of things without even realizing it. You remember when Beverly was trying to explain the difference in the sexes to Soren in The Outcast? Mm -hmm. Do you remember that moment? So Soren comes in. So what's the difference between men and women? Uh, Women put this colored stuff on their faces and their hair is usually in more complex styles. And Beverly says, yes, but here's the thing. Men do that, too, but they don't want you to think that they're doing that. It was a, it was a nice little moment. Um, but it sort of spoke to this idea that this thing that humans do for sexual attraction to make themselves more attractive is all sort of happening in the subconscious. And you can't really stop it, even if you wanted to. And that's kind of where Kamala is. Kamala is just... She's just existing. She's just maturing. She's just being exactly what other people in her situation would be like. And, well, maybe unfortunate that humans are uh, are unable to handle that. So all of this left us with, I, I thought, some other big points to ponder. I wondered if Picard would ultimately be happy with Kamala if she ended up staying 
knowing that she had essentially created herself to be what he wants. Now, now what he wants is pretty great because <laughs> Picard, I mean, Picard has these ideals and we, we started to express that in Captain's Holiday that he wants somebody who is strong and adventurous and knowledgeable and, and all these things. But she is turning herself into that because she can't help it. Um, how would that be any better for Picard, knowing that she could just as easily morph into what Ulrich or anyone else wants? If Picard hadn't, you know, been the one there with her for so long. Mm -hmm. I'm, not um, sure, I'm not sure she actually morphed into what Picard wanted, though. I think she morphed into. No? I think she morphed into Picard. Oh, I think she. I think she actually morphed into what she wanted um, when he asked the question, "What do you like when you're alone?" And she said she was incomplete. At what she saw, it's possible anyway. I don't know a hundred percent. It's possible though yeah. that what she saw in him was a way to be complete, uh, even when on your own. And mm -hmm. that's what she actually morphed into. And 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 she saw a lot in Picard that she loved and admired and respected and decided to go ahead and be that thing even though she mm -hmm. knew she wasn't going to be with him because listen mm -hmm. if he had stopped the wedding she still would have gotten through with it because she's picard now yeah it turns out what, what picard really loves is picard <laughs> yeah. which is kind well, of odd because at the same yeah. time no he doesn't uh, but yeah but that's yeah, right. you know he doesn't hate himself as much as kirk hated himself i don't think although sure. oh I mean, no no you can do well you can do the enemy within and you can do time squared and you can ask whether or not he does and maybe they just manifest in different ways uh yeah. picard certainly seems to be more in touch with himself until mm -hmm. you come up against something like this where oh no maybe he's not i mean because she says at one point well i don't know she acknowledges she actually says look the only reason i'm doing this is because you want me to mm -hmm. because that's how metamorphs work <laughs> right right so yeah. he is denying himself but then should i go ahead and do my huge like big long spiel here go, go ahead and do it because right. i i think what i have remaining is is really what i find interesting in this episode just the questions that it leaves you with okay so i'll come back to that okay yeah. um i i love this episode and i hate it in the same way that I both love and hate The Age of Innocence. And The Age of Innocence, honestly, is one of my favorite novels. And I love the movie, too. I can't get enough of uh -huh. it. Uh, Newland Archer and the Countess Olenska are sort of seen as better because they don't give in to what they want, which is each other. Mm -hmm. Instead, uh, Newland continues um, doing what's expected of him, uh, pleasing his family and society and staying with his wife. Um, and the Countess backs him because of the strength of character that he shows. And in the end, his wife dies and he's alone and he decides it's too late to pursue what he really wanted. And even his kids are like, look, you did what you did and that's cool and all. But now go go be with that woman. And mm -hmm. uh, and he, he decides, no, no, I'm too old. It's too late. Whatever. It's Edith Warden. You know, same person who brought us mm -hmm. Ethan from. And by the way, spoiler alert, I guess I should have said that the novel is almost 100 <laughs> years old. OK, so yeah. so yeah. really, it's on you at this point. And the movie is almost oy, the movie, I think, is like 25 or 30 years old. Ow. That's getting there. Yeah. That hurts. Yeah. Ugh. Mm -hmm. Anyway. I know somebody who stayed in a horrible marriage for years. And I mean, uh, truly horrible, like psychologically abusive, all that stuff. And she stayed in this horrible marriage uh, for years because she was a dedicated member of her other conservative church. Uh, she hung especially to the verse about God never giving us more than we can handle, except that's actually not in the Bible. 
Um, it turns out that the actual verse is uh, is uh, is First uh, Corinthians or One Corinthians, as some people might say. First <laughs> uh, Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful; He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can uh, stand up under it. Hmm. Now, one could argue that the temptation is to do what's easy, and thus the idea is the same. God never gives you more than you can handle, except. Um, that doesn't seem to be the meaning, but I digress. It was, it was a leader in this church who said, look, if your marriage is more than you can bear, it's not from God. And that gave that person permission to walk away. Now, I'm going to take this back to Archer and the Countess Olenska. He was convinced that society and his life would fall apart if he went off to be happy. So he didn't go off to be happy. And while he was content... He was never actually happy. The Countess, meanwhile, uh, gave Newland a speech about how much better his strength of character had made her, except she, too, uh, we assume, is now unhappy. And now we return to Picard and Kamala. There is something beautiful about her choosing to be in love forever with uh, Picard, to be bonded forever to Picard, because he makes her be something of which she can be truly proud but all of that is a reflection of him and of his ideals. He'd rather be right than be happy. He'd rather maintain order. I know we know that Star Trek isn't real, <laughs> but let's yeah, make Kamala sure. let's make Kamala unreal once removed. Uh, she's a reflection a reflection, excuse me, of Picard, um, perpetually choosing order over love, um, eternally choosing, you know, saving the galaxy uh, to enjoying his life, choosing society over himself. Uh, because he assumes that both can't be served, it seems. Yeah. And so that's kind of where I am. And the more I watch it, the more it seems like uh, the age of innocence in space, <laughs> honestly. Except that, the, except that there is no, um, there is no Mae Welland in this. Uh, there's no Winona Ryder character for people who have only seen the movie. Uh, there, there's, <laughs> there's, just, there's just like this. Uh, well, I mean, I, although maybe there is. There's like this constant need from outside. And Picard feels like he needs to he needs to maintain, you know, he needs to give to that constant need uh, rather than giving to himself. Kind of like what you were saying earlier. I mean, he, you know, he he bends himself to to what what is needed. And in doing that, he finds value and doing that. He finds worth. Um, does he find happiness, though? Well, Picard has completely given over his life to duty. I mean, look, look at how long it took us to get to Captain's Holiday and look at how reluctant Picard was to go on Captain's Holiday. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he was finally able to let loose a little bit, but you open up with him sitting there with a book and just being annoyed at the idea of being on Risa. Um, and and put away that Horgon <laughs> because he wants nothing to do with it. He He is... So rigid in his own definition of himself that he kind of can't let loose and see that there are even other opportunities or, or, or other possibilities for himself. So he, he kind of needs somebody like Takala to come in and shake that up. Um, but again, we go back to this question of whether or not Kamala, I, I, I like the way you put it, uh, you know, reminding us that Star Trek isn't real because... Kamala is essentially serving that purpose that Captain's Holiday served, which is to say, like, hey, here's here's somebody else that you could be. Here's this other life that you could have. Mm -hmm. But you are so absolutely wrapped up in your sense of duty and and profession 
that, um, yeah, too bad. You're probably not going to have that. <laughs> well, and here's the thing. He does continually choose it. I mean, he chooses going back to the Enterprise as opposed to running off with Vosh. He chooses... Um, well, I mean, he kills himself in Times Squared. I mean, he's often shown, like, he's shown other images, other ideas of what he could be and who he could be, and he continually chooses what he's choosing. This is the first time that I that it 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 didn't ring right, though. I mean, he was mm. so obviously very much in love with her. She's going to go off and not be in love with someone else. And yes, it would have been tragic. I mean, because here's what he was facing beforehand: uh, she was silly putty. Right. You you press her against one person and she takes that form. You press her against another person. She takes that form. And and what was breaking his heart was, okay. well, here's this woman who is who is absolutely amazing. And 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 she is amazing because she reflects back to him everything that he will find amazing. And and what breaks his heart is she's going to go do that with someone else. And and that's going to be sad because he's going to have lost a thing. But then she realizes, no, I can't just do that. I have to be I have to be. You know, me for me, I suppose. I mean, her bonding with him. Ah, I lost my train of thought. Ah, it's infuriating. <laughs> it's just it's ah, this episode. And yet and yet uh, there may be more to it, John. Shall we explore? I think we should. Quick question. Has there been a relationship on Star Trek to this point that worked out well for the people involved? You know, I love the computer on this show. And I love the fact that we have a segmented show. I love the fact that, uh, you know, we start off with, uh, well, we start off with segment one. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's usually followed by segment two. Although you do get those episodes where all of a sudden it's segment one again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then you jump to segment four and then it's segment three and whatever. Generally speaking, I like the fact that, that this show has a, a certain way that this show works. And yet I, I feel like we could have just like blown the whole thing out today and just had one long conversation because it feels like we just kept jumping from place to place to place. <laughs> I believe because there is just uh, just a lot to talk about in this episode. And yet now we're to the part of the episode where we have to say the end uh, again. So um, this is the part where we talk about the messages, morals and meanings of the episode and try to decide or try to figure out whether the episode uh, stands the test of time. Uh, the perfect mate, John, I put the question to you. Uh, does this episode hold up? Well, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I mean, th- this is one of those episodes that I really like to sink my teeth into because it, no matter what, no matter which scene you go through and pick out, it seems like you could do a whole show just on a particular moment or just on a single idea raised by by the episode. But this is an episode that raises a lot of ideas. Um Mm-hmm. Now, just as a production, just as an episode of Star Trek, uh, as a piece of TV, um, absolutely, it is well produced. It is well acted. It doesn't drag. You know, we just came from an episode last week where it felt like there were a lot of people doing a lot of fun, whimsical stuff, but <laughs> it committed the sin of being boring. It, it yeah. really dragged. This one does not, even though you have a lot of scenes that are intimate dialogue scenes just two people sitting in a room talking to each other but they're all engaging and and they all reveal something about the characters who are in that room having that moment um 
Primarily, this episode is a great insight into Picard. Now, we raise all kinds of ethical issues and and moral questions that we'll get into in just a moment. But I think really one of the things that makes us stand out is that you're peeling back the layers of of, uh, Picard. We had a taste of that with Captain's Holiday. We had this idea of Picard needing to cut loose and us needing to figure out a little bit more what makes Picard tick. But here we really give it heart. It's not just the captain needs to loosen up. This is the captain being really reflective about what he wants and who he is. And at the end of the day, will duty and profession outweigh his personal desires and and maybe mm-hmm. the life that could have been um so for all those reasons, I think it's a fascinating look into that character, and it's a nice piece of Star Trek in that it gives us something weighty and ethical to kick around. So I would say without question, it holds up as an episode. How about you? Well, the one thing that bothers me about it as an episode of Star Trek is it seems to answer the question for us. I mean, a lot of times, if you're not talking about something that's absolutely right or wrong, you know, like, okay, so Balok tried to kill us, but we say that we're going to be the people who help people. So even when Balok tries to kill us, when we end up almost killing him, we're going to go back and help him. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a very Star Trek message. I'm not sure. Well, I guess there is a very Star Trek message here, but we're not to the messages part yet. We're, we're, to, we're to the does it hold up part yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as an exploration of Picard's character, it is interesting. It's also kind of sad. Yeah. Kamala says that she's doing what she's doing because Picard on some level must want her to do that. Apparently that's how metamorphs work. So, I mean, digging into his character, does he want to be aloof? Does he want to be loved yet out of reach? Does he want to be pursued but inaccessible? Um, Or does he want to be loved but simply not allow himself to be because of, you know, some notion of duty or, or some notion of honor or something like that? Does he feel like the world's going to fall apart? If he actually does what he wants to do, he goes on holiday for crying out loud, uh, as you pointed out, very begrudgingly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> right. it, it, we, what was the episode? It was, it was one of the very first episodes where he starts to go through a, a hallway and, and the door opens and he nearly tumbles out into space. It's the is, is it the one is it, oh sure yeah 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 is it um, the drinking one they, the, 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 the wild party <laughs> one is it the one no no okay. no no. No, I, the name escapes me, but that, that's okay. It'll come to me, and it'll come to all of our listeners at the same time. Yes, th- that image always amazed me. That image is he is the thin membrane that holds everything together. He starts to go through this door, and and all that's standing between order and and chaos and death in space is Picard at that moment, right? Um, maybe he has an overly inflated sense of who he is and, and how important uh, order is as opposed to his own happiness, or maybe he's spot on and I'm missing something. Um, I want to say really quickly about the about whether or not the episode, um, just again about the holding up before we get to the messages. Mm-hmm. The Ferengi as foils are actually tolerable to me in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and jump on the timeline. I've never watched DS9 the way we've now watched the original series, the animated series, and most of Next Gen at this point. I am looking forward to seeing uh, how the Ferengi are treated as recurring characters rather than sort of one-off obstacles. And if you think about the way the Ferengi have actually been presented, we are getting facets of them at this point. Yes, they're always greedy. Yes, they're always conniving. But they're greedy and conniving in different ways. 
Uh, there was the Fat Ferengi and Unification, which, you know, sort of basically like lorded his money around. Um, you got these two guys who are, who are sort of, you know, cunning and, and, and trying to pull off a caper. Uh, you had the almost feral uh, presentation of the Ferengi in the very first season. Each character seems to be very one note. Each Ferengi character seems to be very one note. But, but we're starting to get uh, sort of a, 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 a fuller idea that this is a race of people as opposed to a monoculture in a way. Yeah, they're all driven by the desire for a profit. But they're not all driven in the exact same way by the desire for profit. And so even though they are useless in this episode, and I think they're here to be useless, uh, I do find them a, a, a bit fascinating as well. I can't even throw away the Ferengi scenes, um, even though they are, I think, designed to be throwaway. So I think in, 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 all, those, uh, in all those respects, um, yeah, I think the episode holds up. And, Where no one has and, gone before. Huh? Where no one has gone before. Where no one has gone before. That was, okay. That was Picard almost walking. I kept thinking of Times Squared because he's losing his mind, but no. Yeah, no, it's not Times Square. Square. No, no one has gone before. No, nope. no one nope. has gone. Okay, well, thank you very much yep. for that. So everybody stop with the emails. It's amazing to me. cut it out. It's so funny to me, though, because people will, like, email us, and they'll be like, oh, I should have listened to the rest of the episode. Yeah, oh, I know. I know. People will comment uh, everywhere and say, yeah. oh, you didn't mention this. Oh, five oh, minutes later, well, you, you did. Well, you did mention yeah. it. Yeah, right. okay. Yeah. <laughs> is, is my face red? You can't possibly tell. <laughs> Just put down put down the keyboard <laughs> no, for no, no, five minutes. Okay. Yeah. I, like, yeah. I, like the, uh, I like the almost MST3K way that people will tweet us whenever they're listening to an episode. Like, <laughs> That's true. Like, yeah. Shouting at us, in a way, as opposed to, you know, letting us finish, which is fine. That's great. What's our, what's our Twitter <laughs> handle again? I can't remember, but I know you know it <laughs> because you prove that time and again. Um, all right, yep. let's talk about the. Uh, let's talk okay. about the. Uh, are we stalling? I think I said that last week. Are we stalling? Let's talk about the messages. Ugh. Oh my gosh! All right, so okay. uh, uh, there's a lot here, and and like I said before, this is one of those episodes you could pick out one idea, one topic, and just do a whole show about that. Um, our attempt here is to at least get a pretty good overview of what the, the different ideas are that are presented. And what I like is that for the most part, every idea, every argument made here, every discussion, there are perfectly valid and reasonable counter arguments to what's being presented. That's why I like that scene with Picard and Beverly so much sitting there talking about Kamala because they're both making a pretty reasonable argument. They're, mm -hmm. they're both hashing it out in a way that we want Star Trek to do. Uh, so I, I have to give them that. Um, I think a couple of the ethical quandaries at the center of this. Um, I was asking myself if it was ethical for someone to give herself or himself to the other side in the interest of peace. Kamala's sort of setting herself up to be a martyr in some respects. I mean, not, not that she will be killed, but mm -hmm. she is giving away herself. She is going away from the world that she knows, from the life that she knows in the interest of peace and, and faces a very different life ahead of her. But, but this is the duty that she has taken on. Um, and then I also asked myself if it was ethical for someone willingly and knowingly to enter into a relationship in which he or she is treated as property. Well, property here in the in the construct of this episode, but but even in a more real world example, entering into a relationship where there's maybe a gross power imbalance, you know, uh, 
someone can go into a relationship and be perfectly fine with the idea. And as, as Kamala says here, you know, she gets her satisfaction from pleasing the other person. So is that ethical? Is that okay for someone fully of their own will to step into a relationship in which, well, they may be treated not as an equal if we assume that people have free will and they can do that, then that's why I kind of questioned myself earlier. If the Enterprise crew who were stand-ins for us and for our values are maybe applying a bit of too much of their own cultural value judgment on who Kamala is and, and what she is there to do. Now, ultimately, I kept coming back to this question of, you know, it's a very Star Trek question. Is this an episode where the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one? Because if that's the message here, this is a pretty depressing version of it. <laughs> you know, right. We've had Star Trek in the past tell us that that is one of its guiding principles. But we've also had Star Trek tell us through Captain Kirk himself that sometimes the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. Uh, or else he wouldn't have, you know, jeopardized his career and blown up a ship all in the interest of helping his friend. Yeah, except I can't help thinking that the needs of Captain Kirk outweigh the needs of anybody else. Cause, well, I mean, he's you, like you, that. You, yeah. Well, I mean, you can say the needs of the many, or the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many, or the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. But it's really, I mean, yes, that tends to actually be a real Star Trek message, but Kirk throws it around whenever he feels like it. I mean, look what happened mm -hmm. to the feeders of Vol. Yeah, he, yeah. he was offended by that. And so the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, except the many were the ones who now have to figure out how to live. Whereas, you know, mm -hmm. before that, mm -hmm. they were fine. Uh, see also, hey, name checking it again. This side of paradise. Is it this side of paradise? Yeah. This side of paradise. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Wow. How could I possibly even begin to think that I might one day be able to forget <laughs> the name of that episode? <sighs> yeah. I, okay. So... I had an issue with the... I mean, ah, okay, messages in this episode as far as I was concerned. The best that we can do in life is what's expected of us. It seems to me was one was one possible message here. Or the best that we can do is what better society and, and, and happiness be damned at that point. Um, mm -hmm. If I understand utilitarianism, and I can't pretend that I do... I try to understand utilitarianism. Our, our friend uh, uh, Bob Sawyer actually wrote about utilitarianism in his most recent, as, as we record this, his most recent book, uh, Quantum Night. And, and it made me want to read a little bit more about utilitarianism. And then, oh, I would get sleepy or, oh, my head would start hurting or, oh, I would really just get angry <laughs> because, <laughs> because I get, I think I sort of start to get it and yet I don't necessarily get it. Um, it does seem to really pretty much be the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few, though. It's something like, you know, what is going to serve the uh, happiness of the most uh, minus uh, the unhappiness of the person who's having to do the serving, uh, basically, or, or the person who's having, having to give up something. Um, yeah. At the same time, and, and that's, I know that's, a, that's like a Fisher-Price definition of what utilitarianism sure. is, sure, so, yeah. so but, forgive me. I know I'm simplifying it, but that's, that's about as much as my brain can take every time I try to tackle it. <laughs> um, I, I do think that maybe Picard should peek outside the box every now and then. Uh, they have known for however long that um, Ulrich of Vault is going to um, get this woman as his as his prize, as his trove, as his gift. 
uh, for for going through with the uh, with the whole piece, you know, thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems possible that he would have been just as happy without it. He actually said, oh, "I'm sure she'll be fine." What I'm really interested in is the business angle of this whole thing. So maybe at some point somebody could say, mm, "Well, then, how about the girl just goes and does what she wants, and and we'll give you like five more of whatever this thing is instead." Um, had Picard actually thought about it, he might have foregone uh, the tradition, uh, and 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 Ulrich of Vault might have uh, foregone the tradition, um, and yet everybody just sort of does what's expected because that seems to be uh, that seems to be the best thing that anybody can do is is duty and honor and 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 what is not going to rock the boat, and yeah. and that kind of. Um, yeah, I believe it was John Champion who said it's kind of a depressing message. <laughs> well, I, it, it, there's something incredibly depressing about uh, Picard because of that. You know? mm-hmm. Picard, like you said, can't see beyond the simply the the duty and professionalism that he is bound to, and and that's unfortunate. Now, there, there is a production reason for this, of course, and that's that we can't check back in with the next episode if he had decided to interrupt the wedding, and it wasn't just in his, you know daydream fantasy of what he was doing um had they even kept that part in the episode and that's that by the time we get to next week uh where is kamala is she (laughs) is she you know living in captain picard's quarters or is she uh does she have her own space on the deck of the enterprise that has all the other people the enterprise has picked up who says that they would rightfully rather be with the enterprise crew than whatever hellish existence or whatever planet they came from before yeah um sure well yeah we 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 don't explore that on star trek at least not in episodic tv the way it was made in 1992 so here's here's what i like to believe Mm -hmm. that she and jeremy astor and alexander (laughs) most weeks are, are are on a deck playing with the puppies and the dolphins oh that's beautiful yeah. That is beautiful. Yeah. 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 It's not happening. Um, <laughs> I get that there is a, a production reason to not have that, but what you're left is this message where there, there's kind of a tragedy at the heart of it that, that Captain Picard has decided, at least in this case, and so has Kamala, uh, who is fresh to all of this because she was in stasis for a while. They've decided that that duty is more important than personal happiness or even just personal fulfillment at that point. Mm, no. Fulfilled, no? yes. Ha- no, not fulfillment. I think they both no. feel very fulfilled. I don't think they're happy uh, by any stretch. I think, Except they're fulfilled, they- I think they're fulfilled by their duties, but uh, personal fulfillment, I mean, uh, it's going to be a very long time before Picard finds somebody who who would be a personal match for him. Well, maybe he gets stopped by sick bay. Maybe. <laughs> Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at Roddenberry.com. Not only the good work that the Roddenberry Foundation is doing, but you can see what Roddenberry Entertainment is up to, and you can find many cool products from Roddenberry and Star Trek there. You can find more exciting Star Trek podcasts at Trek FM. That's Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, imaginary friend.
some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Promotional consideration provided by the Enterprise 1701D. From negotiations, to weddings, to a simple shuttle service, call the Enterprise. It will beam you up. End transmission.